0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Wild and Unprotected. I'm your host, Ethan Lehman, and I'm here with my co-host, Koji Samalde.
1: Howdy, everyone.
0: In today's episode, we have Dr. Claire Lacey from the University of Hawaii's Marine Mammal Research Program. It's going to be a fun one today.
1: Without further ado, let's see you on the other side. <sighs>
2: We need this place, so please respect it. Hey everyone,
1: welcome back to Wild and Unprotected This is episode 2 Today we have a very special guest that we have been trying to track down She's been so busy um, We want to welcome you guys to our, our guest, Dr. Claire Lacey with the University of Hawaii And she has some very interesting stuff to really dive into, no pun intended, uh, about spinner dolphins. (laughs) So welcome, Dr. Claire Lacey. Thank you for taking the time to chat with us today. Um, We're really excited to get to know you and kind of uh, take a peek into your world.
2: Hey guys, thank you. It's really nice to talk to you.
1: Yeah, so um, we just want to kind of bring everyone in and uh, kind of showcase, you know, First of all, who are you? What do you do? Um, Kind of dive into uh, the quick introductory of yourself.
2: Yeah, thanks. Uh, So, yeah, I'm originally from the UK and I'm now living and working on Oahu in Hawaii, which makes me one of the luckiest people around, I would say. Uh, I work for the Marine Mammal Research Program, which is part of the Hawaii Institute for Marine Biology, which is part of the University of Hawaii. Uh, So we're based here on the east coast of Oahu, uh, our lab is this amazing little island. Do yourselves a favor and Google Coconut Island, H I M B, and you'll see what a beautiful place this is. Um, we get to go to work in a little shuttle boat um, out to a lab because it's an island where our office is. Uh, so, yeah, truly uh, truly have an office in paradise. And for my actual, uh, actual day-to-day work, I... I'm employed here to get abundance estimates for spinner dolphins around the main Hawaiian Islands. That's
0: amazing! Really living the dream, huh?
2: Uh, yeah, for sure. I am super lucky. I didn't know that much.
0: So you'll you'll have to take it back to the beginning. Um, how how did you end up uh, getting to Hawaii? Where did your journey in conservation start?
2: Yeah, so I guess I was one of those kids who uh, was wanted to work with dolphins, and I feel like there's probably a few of those out there. It's just I was lucky enough that this actually happened for me. Um, I'm going to say lucky a lot, I think, during this episode, because that's genuinely how I feel about this. Um, And I, there aren't any more, when I was a really small kid, there used to be dolphins in captivity in the UK, but now and for a long time, there haven't been. And so the first time I really saw them in the wild was on a family holiday up in Scotland, uh, which is kind of the other end of the country from where I grew up. And it, is there's this amazing place there, I think I was about 15 or 16, uh, where you can stand on the beach and it's a really well-known spot in the UK. Everybody, you ask any of the locals, they tell you what kind of time of the tide you need to go and all of this. So you can stand on the beach by this lighthouse and you can see dolphins from the shore. You don't need a boat. You don't need to spend any money. You can just stand there on the beach and watch them as they come through fishing for salmon. And I think for me, I remember getting really emotional because I'd wanted to see dolphins for ever. Uh, that was, yeah, I was a real nerd about that <laughs> as a child. And then I finally got to see them and it was everything I wanted it to be. Uh, and that was, yeah, kind of the clincher for me I was I like, know this is what I'm going to try and make this my job. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I was lucky enough that I did manage to do that.
1: That's incredible. You know, having said that there aren't, dolphins in captivity in the UK like that's news to me I didn't know I didn't know that to that extent Um, but to be able to see them naturally in their you know in their way of feeding like I'm sure that's something that's so spectacular to see with the with your own eyes let alone hear about it or watch a documentary about it but to experience that as a young lad and to bring that into your profession like let's let's really um let's dive into like what happened on that shore between that time and now like where did Claire take her fascination and obsession I will call it an obsession because it's your it's your absolute job <laughs> <That's now. fair>. <laughs> um, <laughs> um Where did you take that obsession from, you know, 15, 16 years old into, you know, fully diving in and saying, hey, like, this is, you know, this is my job. And this is really answering a question to the people that also want to take a similar route, no matter the species.
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, So I did marine and environmental biology for my undergraduate degree uh, in, I went to the University of St. Andrews, which you may have heard of from other famous people that might have been there um it's yeah based in based in Scotland a bit south of where I'd seen those dolphins and it has the biggest marine mammal department I guess for the UK so I was like this is I'd I be very single-minded when I wanted and I was like you get to apply to six choices in the UK you list your top six and that was like my number one and I only went to visit that one I didn't even bother going to visit the other five because so I was like no i going there that's where I'm going to go so I was lucky it worked out or I'd have ended up going to school somewhere I'd never even been to visit which could have ended badly um but no I I went and I had great classes and my the person who supervised my undergraduate project the poor guy also ended up being my PhD supervisor so I ended up working with him for years and years and years and we still You know, kind of work together on things now. So you can build really long lasting, uh, I guess, relationships. It's, uh, yeah, I was super lucky with the people I got to work with. And during my, I guess, my first experience of field work was during the summer holidays between my third and fourth year. uh, So just start before I started my final year when I got to um, be a field assistant uh, up at a field station for one of the postdocs who was working in my department. Uh, so I got to help out on his project for the whole summer. Um, I was basically sitting on a cliff watching him as he was playing different sounds to the dolphins to see how they would react. And they were dolphin sounds that so he was playing different call types to see if they what they used. We were trying to, his. Um, he works on communication, so he was trying to work out what those calls were for. Um, Uh, So, yeah, it was an amazing experience. We had to be out um, and on the water before the Dolphin Watch company came out and kind of got in the way of our videos. So we were starting really early in the morning and we'd be finished by kind of lunchtime. Which meant that the afternoons I could spend getting to know the other people in the field station and finding out about their projects. Uh, So I got to learn a whole ton of different stuff from Vincent, who I was working for, uh, but also from everybody else who was at that station too so it was a really good kind of immersive experience into finding out what life is like as a field scientist i guess
0: yeah you you hit on that you you felt you were lucky um earlier and said you were going to say lucky a lot this episode but that sounds like a lot of hard work um in my opinion and all that hard work seems to be paying off so while i'm i'm sure there were a couple of lucky instances you know throughout your budding career it seems like all of your hard work is kind of culminated to where you're at now to where you get to live in, you know, this gorgeous paradise and and take that boat to the Island every day. I, I, I know for sure uh, speaking from experience that um, when I was working uh, during the summers uh, while I was going to college, I, I was not looking at other opportunities after that to be involved in the same program. <laughs> um, there were no extra hours for me. Um, so that's pretty amazing that, you know, you you put in that level of work and it's it's clearly started to pay off. You know, passion, obsession, emotion, uh, and hard work seem to be a, a great formula for someone like yourself.
2: Yeah, I think that's probably true. Maybe I'm like there have definitely been some fortunate coincidences. I think you, I guess you can't ever downplay the importance of networking. I don't mean like that. My dad knew somebody important. Uh, I just lived in a very normal urban setting, but. In terms of people that you meet at the field station, people you meet through your department, um, just building a network for yourself can be super valuable, actually. So, uh, I think the podcast, (laughs) indeed. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, there's definitely an element of luck with who I got to meet, but um, I won't pretend it wasn't hard work at times too. There's a lot of long days if you do fieldwork for for any species, I guess. Um, Yeah, my uh, you do a final year project. in UK universities often. So my final year project was looking at Spermwell acoustics, um, which was really interesting. But I then to say the lucky word again, the people who'd collected the data I used for my project um, offered me a job, which was supposed to be just a short-term kind of three-month type job and turned into somewhere I worked for eight years. So I feel I definitely did get a good, ch- a good chunk of luck there So I... I got this amazing job straight out of my undergrad degree. Um, And I would say this is a little top tip. It's not always about your grades. Um, I definitely didn't finish top of my class. And there's, you know, there was 30 of us finished with the same degree. But I got that internship because I really liked boats. And I spent a lot of time hanging out on boats and I was in the. You know sailing club at university and we weren't any good but it meant I knew how to tie some knots and (laughs) uh, stuff like that and that was why they gave me a job on a boat because I knew I liked boats whereas yeah yeah so sometimes pick your extracurriculars wisely too I guess it's
1: nice to have a little bit of humility too um looking back on on your career to say yeah we weren't great at sailing but I knew (laughs) that I could learn something and bring that into my passion um, you know, to kind of piggyback on what Ethan said, that hard work and um, uh, finding, you know, that network, like you said, Claire, um, is extremely important nowadays, um, no matter what the industry, you know, because if you show up and show that you're passionate and that you care, and that um, you have intention to do something in that profession, you know, you're kind of going to gravitate towards mentors, you're going to find people that you want to be like, you want to work with and that you want to be around all the time. And I think that it might've been very easy um, being on an island where (laughs) there's not many people uh, that are, you know, so spread apart. You're in this community, you know? Um, And I could only imagine what that had, had been that eight years of your early career had been like, you know, spending however many months or weeks on, on a boat and then, you know, spending however many months or weeks in the office, you know, can you kind of elaborate on what that experience was like and transitioning into the position you're in now?
2: Yeah, for sure. So it was uh it was an amazing job. It really was I loved kind of every second of it. And so I would spend most of the field seasons uh living on this boat. And it started when I first started, it was a 45 foot sailboat and then they upgraded to a bigger one uh so the like the larger one was seventy two foot and they were both wow. um sailing boats, so yeah they were not huge, and there would be there was eight of us on the team of which kind of five to six were on the boat at any one time, and I was like twenty two so I didn't have a house and family and the things that some of the more established team members have, so I just spent huge amounts of time on the boat, plus I loved it, so i didn't wanna why would I not <laughs> not wanna be on the boat and we got to work the whole North Atlantic for a different, so it was run by I4, the International Fund for Animal Welfare. And they had lots of different campaigns running. And so we would do survey work, uh, research work, that would um, kind of support the campaigns they were doing. So, for example, when they were running an anti-whaling campaign, we were working up in Iceland, kind of targeting to show that you could do whale research without it having to be lethal research, because. Uh, The caveat is that they're kind of hunting whales for research purposes. So we were showing you can do research without having to hunt them. And we um, worked with partners on Mediterranean monk seals. Uh, So we were working off of the north coast of Africa, doing some work with partners there to support a campaign. So it was often uh, the downside, I guess, is that we never did anything in huge amounts of depth because they were quite short seasons. But the plus side was that we got to go a whole ton of places so I got to work with a whole ton of species and learn a lot of different techniques with a lot of different collaborators which is an amazing way of getting experience when you're first starting out so we covered yeah all the ecosystems I guess between Iceland down to the Caribbean both sides of the Atlantic the Mediterranean I got to learn a a huge amount about different conservation issues which I guess was an unexpected bonus I hadn't really thought about that when I went in, because we were supporting their campaigns, you have to know the background to the campaign and why things are important and learn some of the legislation that supports different um, conservation actions. Uh, But then obviously I also learned all of the field techniques and both for visual surveys, for acoustic surveys, I got to learn how to live on a ship without going completely bonkers. And um, all of those, yeah, kind of things that you would maybe more expect um, so, no, it was an incredible learning experience for me. And I definitely would not have got my current job or my PhD position or several of the other jobs I've had in between without having that. You know, that job was what got me all of those positions for sure.
0: It's amazing seeing the stepping stones of your career, just from, you know, that moment in that, that channel to going through your undergrad to, to this job that you're speaking um, about now all the way to, you know, your current position. Um, that's, that's amazing. Um, you talked about some of the things, um, that, that kept you from going bonkers on on the (laughs) boat, uh, for a long time. I can imagine you guys, um, were on the boats for an extended amount of time, especially, you know, if you ended up down in the Caribbean, um, what, what are some fun stories that you can share, um, about the times on the boat?
2: (laughs) I mean, there, there are a few, I mean, you have to remember, so this is, you you have a small amount of of space and you're with the same people. And if you've been working with those people a long time, you've kind of had every conversation you're going to have uh, with them several times. Uh, So you start having to find other ways to entertain yourselves. And uh, (laughs) this actually wasn't on the sailing boat. This was on another big survey boat that I worked on. So a much bigger ship with a few more people. But this one had a medical... Uh, like a doctor's room, I guess, where if anybody was sick, they would go and hang out uh with the medic and in this room, they had one of those we call them resusucinie, you know those dummies that you practice um like c p r on uh, <laughs> and somebody thought it would be really we didn't have anybody sick at the time uh and somebody thought it would be really funny to take this and just hide it in different locations around the boat, but it would they would put it <laughs> in strategic places so like you'd open a cupboard and it would just be there in front of your face, or they'd put it in somebody's uh, kind of wet weather gear. So, but they hung it up in such a way that you'd come down the stairs and it would look like somebody was right at the bottom of the of the stairs. Um, so it like terrified a whole load of us because it's often you know you're doing watches through the night, so you'd come out, you would not be very awake. There's only red lights on, and then there was a face just staring at you through the through the cupboard that you weren't expecting. Uh, we had a, a lot of fun with that one for sure. Um,
1: <laughs> uh, so that you you could call that a a, a prank essentially uh, yeah
2: <laughs> yeah I would say uh, a fairly harmless one but uh yeah there's <laughs> there are other times on the sailing boat you would have to wake up the person who was next following you on from watch so you're on every you're going on watches through the night so you'd be on for three hours then you'd get to go to bed but you'd have to wake up your replacement before you could leave and some people were much if you were you would try and do the rotor, so you could be strategic about who was waking you up because some people are much some people would like make you a cup of tea and just like gently shake your shoulder and be like oh come on it's time to get up and then other people would just shine a torch right in your face so you'd wake up uh like really suddenly um there was one person who would occasionally wear comedy masks to wake you up so you'd wake up and find like a president's face right in your face as well (laughs) um and so these are little bunk you know bunk beds so you're very close together <laughs> uh a gorilla mask once so <laughs> there, were, <laughs> there were a whole bunch of things like that you uh yeah you have to have a bit of a sense if, you, if you're going to spend lots of time at sea for sure um because there's not much to do when you're not working um
0: yeah, it seems like it, and you know, a a big premise of this this show is being able to show, you know, that that behind the scenes, you know, the the wild stories that happen, you know, when you're out on a research mission, you know, for extended period of time, and and give a peek behind the curtain that you can have fun and you can you can do all of this while doing you know a uh, uh, a fairly important job. Um, so those those are those are pretty awesome.
2: Yeah, and it was. I mean, there were also some. It, you know, the usual things, people would bring a the guitar, there was always music, uh, those kind of events. One ship I worked on, for some reason, we were allowed ice cream on Sundays. I don't know why, but we turned it to a whole group of little kids on Sunday afternoons because they let us have ice cream. And it was like birthday parties when you're really small. <laughs> um, you kind of have to. Yeah, once we. Oh uh, Yeah, all kinds of things. I remember us making a puppet show once on this one after an extended period of really bad weather, just because we'd utterly run out of things to do. Uh, particularly if the weather's bad it gets very um, repetitive very quickly because you can't you're a long way from land there's nothing to see the weather is bad so you go out you get cold and wet for two hours or three hours then you come back in but it's too rough to sleep and then people get overtired um, and then you start doing really silly stuff <laughs> like that because you, you get excited by ice cream because that's a highlight it's a break-in routine kind of thing so you yeah uh, yeah you you do end up reflecting later just like, what what are we doing <laughs> um but the sailing boat the newer one had a um like you could turn the saloon into a cinema so we watched a lot of really bad movies we because uh, <laughs> you don't want to watch good movies in that situation you only want to watch bad ones so we went through a phase of watching like all of the shark, Nado, Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus, all of those terrible, <laughs> terrible like ocean creature movies.
0: I feel like uh, that's horrible to watch while you're on the water.
2: But they're so bad. It was just <laughs> they're so funny. Um, yeah, I got a whole run of those. Um, but there's some really beautiful stuff out there as well. So when you're, uh, it, yeah, when you're kind of not messing around and not working, there's also some amazing stuff to see out there. It sounds really weird, but When you get away from land and there's no light pollution and you get to see the stars, how the stars are really meant to be when there's no lights around, um, it's it's kind of amazing. To it sounds it's another one of those things that sounds weird to describe, but it sounds you know it's it's incredible to watch. Um, And kind of bioluminescence, which is where the little plankton glows green, and you see you're looking at the water and there's just little green flecks, and if you're super lucky you get dolphins come up through that and it almost looks like torpedoes coming through the water, but it's dolphins coming. And you wouldn't know they were there because it's dark, except you can see their trail in the green, uh, like bioluminescence. And it's, yeah, things like that you never would get to see if you didn't spend large amounts of time at sea. And it, yeah, I think those are some of my favorite memories. Just like, yeah, with stuff like that, you would never see.
1: And it it makes you think you almost, like, have to, like... Have to experience that in order to really understand, you know, and even just plant the seed of how important it is that we need to conserve that, that we absolutely need to conserve that, like to get a little bit off topic here in Tampa Bay, where I live, um, over the course of early social distancing and COVID times, nobody, was on the water, not one jet ski, you know, not one paddleboarder, not one fisherman. And Tampa Bay here came back to life because of the um, absence of human presence. And there were nights where we would walk along a seawall here in Tampa Bay. And we would, for the first time ever see bioluminescence in the Bay, which is rare. Like, very rare to see that and you know fast forward six months eight months the world kind of comes back to normal per se and you could see you know bioluminescence kind of drifting away and animals acting what we think is normal you know and it's sad you know because there's times where you are in those beautiful places and you're able to experience something that is surreal and completely natural and makes you wonder how that's even possible. And then you go into the middle of a city somewhere and you're like, where's, where is the wildlife? What was once here before this concrete jungle, you know? um, And I could speak hours on that, but I'm sure your experience eight years as an, you know, as a researcher going through so many different species and and finding so many different, um, you know, just new experiences. I have a question. Mm -hmm. What of all the species that you've worked with in that span of time, what was one of the most memorable things that you experienced, whether it be in the North Atlantic or wherever you were, what was some of the most ex- memorable experiences
2: uh this is actually from a different ship a different time but i i have a weird obsession with penguins um so like <laughs> deep in my heart i'm a dolphin nerd but i love penguins also and i think because they're kind of they are birds but they're almost marine mammals they're so like they're so weird for a bird and i had an amazing opportunity to work for British Antarctic Survey just for one survey. So I got to spend um kind of almost two months on a big government UK government ship going down to do a tour of Antarctica. And we were working around South Georgia which is um a kind of sub Antarctic island. And I remember the first time I saw penguins I cried. <laughs> um I was like so excited to see them. Uh, so that was like my I because 'cause they're you have to go very specific places to see penguins like you can see different types of dolphins in a lot of places but you have to yeah you it's hard to find penguins i mean my one of my pets is called penguin that's how much I'm i know about this uh, see we're we're learning new things about you claire yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i have a little a little cockatiel called penguin um but, <laughs> um but that place was like it kind of amazing i think if you Grew up reading, as I did, a lot of Antarctica-type books and the kind of old explorer books. Uh, getting to see some of those places is is amazing in itself. Um, but also going back to what you said about Tampa Bay, it's Antarctica is literally is the end of the world, and it is so far away from everything. But even there, you would imagine, you know, we're on a big government ship. You would imagine you'd be the only people there. But you see. Coming, like in some of those bays, there would be almost a line of cruise ships waiting to come in and they stagger them so that the people, the guests on board get the feeling that they're the only boat there. But you, if you are going out past them, you see one come in and then the next one's just waiting just kind of round the corner. Um, so even there, it's not remote anymore, almost. I mean, it is physically, but it's, people go there now. It's hard to find isolated places. Um, wow yeah it was kind of it was a little bit depressing when i i was there so we were part of the problem they were seeing our ship too it wasn't just going in one direction of course but i was quite surprised by that um definitely
1: which is wow you know, that's impactful yeah. man that's impactful you know yeah. wherever wherever there's a dollar to be made right
2: yeah and some of those companies do great stuff by letting scientists come on board and as we touched on earlier, if you don't get to experience something, it's hard to care about it. So it's hard to criticize what they're doing, um, but it's not quite how you imagine it's going to be, definitely.
0: Yeah, when you get to experience it, I, I feel like that's when the emotional connection really kicks in, like you were talking about. When you when you get to meet it face-to-face, um, the the impact that I feel like it has on individuals is... A hundred times more than it would be if they never experienced it. Uh, you know you you could almost deny that these things happen because you've never seen it yourself. <laughs> you know it's like that old adage, you know if if a tree fell and it didn't make a sound in the forest, did it fall? you know, or mm-hmm. if I completely butchered that, I apologize, but <laughs> it just is the same. um you know that that emotional impact that people get from experiencing things is huge that's something that koji and i have been through with with the start of you know this program um and it's hopefully something that people really get to experience you know going forward and it's it it really is sad how far reaching negative human impact is when it comes to you know ecosystems environmental concerns and you know just how naive people are because they don't get to experience it it's 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 depressing, but at the same time, a fixable problem. And I, I think that's a highlight that it is fixable.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely, an Antarctic cruise is something if you're not going for work, or even if you are going for work, you know, there's a definite amount of privilege there. And paying for one of those as a holiday is not something that many of us are ever going to be able to do. But there are lots of ways, you know, like that, beach where I saw my first dolphins like that, you just have to be in the right place. So if you can get yourself to the coastline, there's amazing things to be found in so many places if you want to find them. Uh, So there are certain things that are, maybe not everyone's going to get to South Georgia, but there are places you can, yeah, I think the ability to be amazed by nature is available for everybody, for sure. At least I hope it still is.
1: Right. Yeah, like we said earlier, you know, like not being you don't really understand it until you've experienced it. But I think there's that direct caveat of you don't really miss it until it's gone. Mm -hmm. So those two running topics there are something that we can definitely crown Claire for, you know, bringing to the audience. You've definitely, um, you've definitely touched a a heartstring for me because you just don't know what we have until it's gone. You know? Um, but that's incredible. Claire, thank you for sharing, you know, your journey um, coming up and, you know, getting to where you are now. Let's kind of shift the conversation into um, what life is like now for you um, in Hawaii, you know, kind of what your every day is like and um, just your your overall experience um, working with specifically spinner dolphins.
2: Sure. Yeah. So this is a it's kind of a little bit different for me in that. Um, I'm not on big ships and I'm not away for large chunks of time at the moment, so the field work for this project is more day trips um so we have a much smaller boat, just a little um you know 20 odd foot whaler so very different to, <laughs> to the big government ship type situation and we go out um my first year here we were trying to survey the whole of Oahu so we're surveying out to kind of three miles off the coast because well, we'll go back a step. Spinner dolphins are cool, really cool little dolphins. And they do hang out in the open ocean. But when they hang out near islands, particularly Hawaii and some of the other Pacific islands, they have a quite cool diurnal uh, kind of pattern going on where they feed offshore at night and then come in during the day and they hang out really in very shallow water, very close to the coast to rest and socialize. And so they're pretty much sleeping during the day and feeding at night to simplify. And that means if you want to find them in the day there, you don't have to go very far. They're very, they're pretty predictable. They like sheltered resting bays, um, which makes them, yeah, super easy to find. They like, um, the sheltered side of the island. So you get to work the nice, the nice side of the island. You don't have to fight the weather conditions and Whilst this makes them really easy to study in some ways, because they're very accessible, that also means they're very accessible to everybody else too. So they've been, particularly here, the subject of very intensive dolphin watching programs and swim with programs. And NOAA has, the so the kind of federal agencies have recently brought in legislation to stop swim with programs and to limit how close you can get to them, to try and Give them a bit of a chance because they're resting when we're trying to swim with them. So it's like you know you're trying to sleep and somebody's poking you in the shoulder the whole time. From the wake up, wake up. And yeah, that'd be annoying. And flying yeah, a drone over your head. Flying a drone over your head and jumping, you know, doing, jumping on top of you, and that's a, you can't get any rest like that. So that has knock-on effects for them. You know, they don't feed as well because they're not sleeping. They don't socialise as well. That you know, that's not a good conservation lookout for sure. Um, but my post was funded because we don't also have any idea how many there are. And if you don't know how many there are, it's really hard to know if the population is going into decline or if they need additional management measures or, uh, you know, what's happening. You need to, you need to have a baseline to start with.
0: So with that being said, we don't even know if they're listed as endangered because we don't have population numbers or we do know, and we don't know how many exist in the wild now.
2: Uh, we do have some population numbers, but they're um, so the US manages marine mammal. This gets into legislation a bit, but the US manages marine mammals under stocks. Uh, they're, so they're defined as little populations um, that hang out together. So Hawaii has four um, insular spinodolphin stocks. This, yeah, sorry, this is a bit dry. Um, for and for some of those, we have some information, but it's quite old. So there's information from Hawaii Island from, or oh, off the top of my head, sorry, Julian, if I've got this wrong, I think around 2012, I need to check the dates. Um, but nothing's been done since then. So that was a PhD project that was done um, by someone here at UH, but you know, some time ago. So some of those numbers need updating. Uh, for some islands, we don't have an estimate at all. For some, we just have pieces of an estimate. So there's an old estimate from 2010-11 for the west side of Oahu, but there's nothing for the rest of that stock. Uh, so it's kind of lots of little pieces. So the aim was to try and get something a bit more holistic for the whole setup. Um, so I, my first year was working to try and get the whole of Oahu done, not just the west side. Uh, The west side was done because it's easier. It gets shelter from the mountains, so the weather's much nicer on that side. Um, And then the second kind of phase was working off of, yeah, Hawaii Island, so collecting data there. Uh, So on the field days, you go out, again, super early because the weather is normally nicest early in the day. Uh, so we'd be out kind of for daybreak and we'd stay out till normally around three in the afternoon, which is often when the wind starts to pick up. And we'd be looking for as many dolphins as we could find during that time. There's a specific survey design you have to follow to make sure you cover the whole area evenly. So you're not just going to places where you know they hang out because that's going to mess up your estimate.
0: Yeah, like that spot looks good. Let's let's go there. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> cheating.
2: You can't, can't just do that. <laughs> you have to go to the less good places too. Um, taking photographs of all the animals we find so that we can try and recognise individuals and see if they're moving um, to different places. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the field days. Um, so nice long days on the water, but then home uh, in the evenings. so not staying out overnight. Because
1: uh, then they go off to feed.
2: Yeah, then they go off offshore and it's dark and you're in a tiny boat, so you don't want to. You might as well go in. Um, mm-hmm. And then. Yeah, processing your data for the next day, downloading all your cameras, making sure your batteries are all charged, uh, general prep stuff like that, make, taking care of the boat, <laughs> yeah, all of that mm-hmm. stuff. The less glamorous side, uh, fighting, fighting with the batteries.
1: Well, it seems like you get better sleep now.
2: <laughs> yeah, so for sure, right now, the uh, daylight, that's the beauty of the tropics. The days are, they don't start quite so early in the morning as they do um, when you're in Scotland, for sure. And you don't have to worry
0: about waking up to a gorilla mask in your face. Also that. (laughs) yeah, (laughs) Or a CPR dummy around the corner just waiting to jump out and scare you.
2: Uh, Yeah, I'm going to go into lab now and find somebody who's done that. I should never have said this out loud.
1: (laughs) So, uh, Claire, you touched base on, you know, what your everyday looks like, um, the type of research you're doing, the type of surveys you're taking. Um, What is the other side of um spinner dolphin research in terms of um in, endangerment like what uh problems does this species face whether it be from humans whether it be lack of nutrition food supply what are some things that um that you're seeing as a as a problem for these dolphins
2: yeah so for for this species at least at the moment it doesn't seem like Food is an issue for them. It feels they seem to be able to, to feed okay, which is great, obviously. But the main problem for these guys is, I mentioned them being so coastal, that means they come into contact with people all the time. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been lucky enough to come here or come to any islands that have a similar setup. Um, you They hang out outside the harbor some days. Like They're right there, you don't need to try and find them. So that means they're, yeah, constantly having boats go past while they're trying to sleep, which is, and sometimes those boats aren't, they're just minding their own business. They're not chasing the dolphins. They're just coming in and out of the harbour, but it's not great resting habitat for them necessarily. Um, And it's kind of, yeah, it's, you all know it's like when you've had a bad sleep, like that affects every aspect of your life. And if that happens continually, over long periods of time then that doesn't end well at all
0: yeah quality of life degrades very quickly
2: yeah no for sure Um, but on top of that you have to remember that dolphins are they use like sound is very important to dolphins we've not really talked about this but they use echolocation for communicating and for finding their food and for yes like really integral to them it's kind of like they're, I guess, sound is as important for them as vision is for most people. It's their primary sight, and so when the overall ocean noise level goes up, it's harder and harder for them to communicate and to do their to do their thing. So, ocean noise is actually a huge problem. And you mentioned kind of about COVID and how that, uh, yeah, kind of brought Tampa Bay back to life a little bit. Uh, one of my colleagues here works on acoustics, and she has static recorders that sit on the seabed and just record ocean noise the whole time. And her recordings for COVID show the noise levels dropping enormously. So just even just day-to-day noise of people's boats going backwards and forwards, container ships going backwards and forwards, fishing boats. And these boats are just minding their own business. They're not doing anything bad, but it just makes the overall environment louder and louder and louder. Um, And it's kind of like... It's a really crude analogy, but the best I can think of is you know, if you're trying to write something and somebody's flicking the light switch on and off the whole time and it just gets very distracting and super annoying and you can't, it's very intrusive. Um, and so it's not on its own going to physically harm you, but over time it, it has a you know, really bad effect on you. Uh, so that's definitely an issue and one that I think we don't talk about enough, like ocean noise as a concept. Uh, But also they're subject to the, you know, the same issues with plastic pollution and general, you know, chemical pollution and habitat degradation as anything else living in the environment. Uh, We actually saw one of the saddest days out we had. There were spinners normally hang out in quite big groups and we saw just two animals together, which is a bit weird on its own. And it was a mother calf pair. The calf was still really small, so definitely still feeding from mum. And the mum had, uh, I don't know what it was. It looked like a metal ring, kind of like a bangle bracelet, but it probably wasn't that. But some like metal ring over her beak. And it was essentially holding her mouth shut. And I don't know how it would have got on there. We couldn't get it off. We didn't have any equipment on the boat to try and deal with something like that. Um, but there's no way that animal could have been feeding. It was probably stuck on there. Um, and if she's not able to feed, the rest of the group has already disappeared. It's just her. The calf won't feed if she's not feeding. So probably both of those animals would have died um, and she would have just picked that up from somewhere. Um, We did, of course, report it to the strandings, you know, their network to see if they could do anything about it. I don't think they were able to find her again. It's really difficult to track these animals. Um, Yeah, it just kind of brings it home to you what happens when you're a bit careless with, yeah, trash I guess yeah Uh
0: wow that's that is so uh wow that is that's horrible um well um we're getting close to wrapping um and I had uh final two questions for you um one is um kind of going to help us live up to the wild and unprotected, really zany, uh, podcast name. Um, so be ready for it. <laughs> um, and, and the second one, um, will be a way for people to get involved, um, and, and, um, see what you do. Um, so the first one is, um, we, we think dolphins are, uh, fairly, um, intelligent animals, I would assume if, if not, um, some of the most intent, um, uh, excuse me, um, some of the more intelligent animals, um, in the animal kingdom. Is it true that dolphins are the only other species that have sex for pleasure, um, than humans? Is that true?
2: I don't know if they're the only other species, but they do definitely do that for sure. Dolphins are risky beasts.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Have you, have you ever encountered that while, while, um, on a on a research mission
2: oh you see it all the time there if you are watching if you're lucky enough to see dolphins bow riding you'll see them touching like flipper to flipper which is social contact but you also see one swimming on top of the other in a familiar looking shape and that's they're doing exactly what you think they might be doing (laughs) (laughs) often uh, so yeah it's very easy to see. <laughs> uh, I I kind of think that's incredibly talented. <laughs> that's
0: I, I couldn't imagine doing that and moving it. Uh,
2: it's quite a skill for sure. Um so yeah we have a lot of uh, inappropriate dolphin GoPro footage if yeah. we were we actually were joking about setting up an OnlyFans account to see if we could make Only some money for that. Up. <laughs> I think we have
0: our, our episode name. <laughs> Only <laughs> Fins.
2: <laughs> that's Gotta it Make right your there. research money somehow, right? <laughs> yeah, that is uh,
0: that is definitely, I'm sure there's someone who's like, <laughs> wow, a whole new world just opened up.
2: <laughs> yeah, we maybe, yeah, we should maybe not go too far down that path, but yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, uh...
0: we'll keep that surface level.
2: <laughs> They're a tactile species, tactile group of animals. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um so the final question we have so we can wrap um is how did you get involved with the University of Hawaii and how can others um get involved um with your program or you know see what you guys are doing um on a day-to-day basis um how how can people see that
2: Uh sure so actually my way in is really boring I just saw the job advertised and applied for it like a regular job so um that maybe doesn't Help people. Oh, um, I didn't even but, know that works. Yeah, no, so sometimes, yeah, if there's vacancies, they go on our website. So we have yeah, the lab has a website, of course. Um I, don't know, I can't remember what it is. Let me just check as we're saying that. Uh we also have social media, particularly our Instagram account is um sorry, I'm just trying to check uh check what the website is now. Uh our Instagram account has probably most stuff on it, uh and that is Underscore mmrpuh. Um,
0: I believe a certain someone was just featured um, on a post on Instagram <laughs> in the last week, if I remember correctly.
2: We were featuring it because it's Women's History Month, March, so we were featuring uh, all of the amazing women who work in the lab. Uh, there is lots of very cool people work here, so you should check out all of those, not just mine. You should you should check out the others too. Um, But we have Twitter and Facebook as well. But I would say probably Instagram is the best one of those. Um, We take, if this is a career that you think you might be interested in, um, whether you're just starting out or whether you want to change your career, kind of any stage, get in touch with us, depending on the projects that are happening. We do take volunteers and interns. Some of those are able to work remotely, so you don't necessarily have to be on site uh, sometimes it's field work away. Sometimes it's coming into the lab. We have lots of different options there. So get in touch um, on the website, uh, you know, via the website. You can, I'm happy to give you guys my email and people can get in touch um, with me directly if they want. Uh, I definitely wouldn't have got here without a lot of help from my network, as we talked about earlier. So if we can extend that same chance to other people, I would like to do that too um yeah sorry the website is mmrphawaii.org i should know that we can (laughs) i can send those to you and you can put them in the notes
0: include it in the links below
2: yeah and yeah and probably the final thing is if you are a high school student in hawaii two of the phd candidates here at lab who are both incredible people are they run a summer school for um, under. Uh, kind of underrepresented people targeting, like hopefully native Hawaiians uh, to encourage them, give them a chance to break into some marine mammal, learn some marine mammal stuff and find out what's going on. So if you're here on Hawaii and you might be interested, uh, look out for information on the SMILE program, uh, which is coming up soon and we'll put the links to that too.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Claire, Um, working through the technical difficulties with us. Um, It has been a great time and I'm looking forward uh, to having everyone here this episode.
2: Thank you. It was great to
1: talk with you. Thank you so much,
2: Claire.
1: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the wild and unprotected podcast brought to you by wildscape productions follow us on social media at wildscape productions for more information on our documentary series shoreline stories visit wildscapeproduction.com stay tuned for our future episodes as we have so much more in store for wild and unprotected wild and unprotected planet earth we can't neglect it I, nature sexy we need to